Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Taminga O'Donnell. Currently, you work at the, is, I always mispronounce, Munk, Munk, has, what's the correct pronunciation? That was perfect. It's a museum dedicated to the work of Edvard Munk. It was known as the Munk Museum, and it's now recently been rebranded as Munk with capital letters, because the museum is about to open new premises on the waterfront of Bjerwika in Oslo. And your position there is is curator, correct? Senior curator of contemporary art. Okay. I've always wondered something, totally random thing. When it comes to like a private museum like this, where it's like named after an artist, how do you only exhibit the artist? Do you exhibit contemporary works influenced by the artist? Like how does that sort of translate to continuing to have contemporary exhibitions? It's a good question. I mean, firstly, it's actually a public museum because the day of the Nazi invasion of Norway, Edvard Munch gave all his work to the Oslo City Council. So it's formerly a council museum. So we're owned by Oslo City Council. And of course, there are a number of these museums that are dedicated to the work of a single artist. Munch is actually part of a network of several of these museums all over the world. And people do it differently. But I think increasingly, we can see a tendency where not only does one want to put the artist whose collection you are looking after in conversation with other artists, whether solo exhibitions or in a larger group exhibition, one also wants to, in a sense, preserve their legacy by including contemporary artists in the programming. And with the Munch Museum in particular, it's also home to three other collections including one by Rolf Stenschen, who was a great collector of Munch, but also a supporter of young artists. So that kind of legacy of Rolf Stenschen provides the impetus or the excuse, if you like, to work with contemporary artists. So that's where my position comes in. I don't actually work on Edvard Munch, I don't work on the collection, but I work on the contemporary art program. I actually did a, an entire series of work based on his uh, position of uh, females having like the red, the white and the black outfits and all that kind of stuff and the different psychological things. So I've actually been influenced by his work quite greatly in my own work. So I love him. Wonderful. You have to come to Oslo when we open. If you Have you been to the museum? I have never been to Norway at all, but there is a plan for me to be there at least once this year. So, yes. Fantastic. You'll have to come. I mean, what happens with the new museum is that suddenly there are 13 floors as opposed to one ground floor with limited amount of space to show the collection. So now, I mean, the collection is huge, thousands of works, but it means that there are several floors dedicated to the work of Edvard Munch. And then in addition, artists such as you're describing who are influenced by Munch, like Tracy Emin, contemporary artist, and group shows that contextualize Munch in his time, but then also shows that of Oslo-based artists, young emerging artists, somewhat more established artists. So we can provide you with a huge package when you finally come and we finally open. Fabulous. Yeah, we're actually working in collaboration with Kunstcentrene i Norge. Oh yeah, well done. Did I pronounce it correctly? <laughs> Pretty good. I tried. I've, t I've sort of practiced that. So, okay. 
one of the first things I want to know about people because it's not just about Munk, it's about you. So how did you even get into this? So like were your parents creative, like your childhood? Like how did you get to being a curator? In many ways, it's both because of and despite my parents. So my parents met at art school in Leeds in the late 1960s, early 70s. He continued working as an artist and also as a professor at the Art Academy in Oslo. And she went from being a textile artist to becoming a curator. So I've pretty much grown up in this. I think I went to my first documentary in 1982 when I was in a pram. But at the same time, as the money question comes in, my parents very much encouraged me to pick a much safer career. So actually, they would go and study economics. So I really don't even like economics. I'm not even good at economics. So the kind of trade-off was that I studied history and economics. I was supposed to do that when I applied to Oxford. And they very kindly took one look at my economic skills and offered me history and politics, which I did. And then, this is quite a circuitous route, I was recruited to join a law firm after my BA. And I thought, well, that sounds like a sensible career. And joined this sort of magic circle law firm. Had two years of law, but at the same time felt really kind of understimulated. So I did art history at the same time. And the joys of, on Saturday, being able to go over to the Victoria and Albert Museum where the National Art Library is, a beautiful old library when I moved to London. So I basically did a sort of BA in art history at the same time as doing law. And then I started working as a lawyer and I'm sure it's not dreary for everyone, but I think if you have something else that you, that you really love doing, then it became such, I was like working Monday to Friday, nine to five, in order to get the time to do, to do the sort of artwork. So my parents were very supportive at that point because I was, I was remember being in tears and lunch with my dad and just being like, I, was, I hate it so much. And he just said, well, why don't you just stop then? And Will's, and I was like, but the money, uh, and he was like, we'll sort it out, don't worry. And so I left after a year of being a lawyer and started finishing the art history and then went on a kind of residency in a foundation of contemporary art in Accra and used that experience in part of my application to the Royal College of Art, the curating program there. Got in, and then it's sort of 2006 to 2008, and then I was kind of on the track, if you like. But of course, I graduated in 2008, which was the financial crisis, and suddenly all, all of the jobs that we'd been promised with this prestigious curating degree just disappeared. So I went for the Whitechapel, for the Whitechapel Gallery in London for about half a year, and then decided that this was the point at which I should probably pursue what I wanted to do, which was a PhD. And then during that, I got a job working with one of my former colleagues at the Whitechapel at MK Gallery, where he then became the director, Anthony Spira. And he was doing some research into Norwegian artists and needed someone who could kind of connect him to the Norwegian scene. And then we did a huge retrospective, the only retrospective of Norwegian artist Hariton Pushvagned, who died relatively recently. And then that was, in a sense, my track into working more sort of full-time when I finally finished my PhD. But all of this is sort of a little bit fortuitous. I mean, I to be honest, I never would have thought of the Monk Museum at this point in like 2014-15 as somewhere where one would go for cutting-edge contemporary art. 
because it's, it had this vibe of being a place where you, you look after the collections as a Norwegian school person. You'd always, you would go there, you'd see it, you'd take tourists who came there. You, you almost don't realize, you know, the wonders of, of what you have immediately on your doorstep. Um, so when my now boss phoned me and, and encouraged me to apply for a job at the Munk Museum, I sort of thought, well, well, okay, because I was one needed the experience of applying for jobs anyway. And I did apply for it and I didn't get it, but I was so enthusiastic about the potential of like contemporary art at the museum in my interview and sort of to the point where I was bouncing up and down on the chair and they had to <laughs> tell me to sit still, that they created this other project about contemporary art and taking the move from the current location at Tayen in Oslo, an English mile down the road to the waterfront of Bjørvika, and basically gave me free freedom to to dis, to conceive that project. It was a four-year project, and that was the start of the Museum on the Move, which is how I got the position now. Sorry, that was a very long-winded tale of how I got there. Perfectly acceptable. All of our journeys are all circuitous in many ways. It's perfectly fine. You then work at a museum which has this, as you sort of referenced, like this idea of like looking at history because it's named after Monk, but you're involving contemporary work. So like when you're talking about that, how do you how do you find people that are necessarily artists that are referencing that? Because I would imagine they don't necessarily like put it in their CV, like work influenced by or whatever. Like, so like how do you choose artists that you feel like somehow uh, speak in the same language or influenced by the work of Edward Munch? Well, I think in many ways, the work of Edward Munch in a Norwegian context is a bit of a curse for young artists. So I was very clear when devising Munkmiss on the move, it was much more about the neighborhood of the museum and the role the museum has played in this very diverse neighborhood of so-called old Oslo. And it was also about the museum as a large institution within landscape with lots of other smaller and medium-sized institutions and how the museum could behave in a neighborly fashion towards these institutions acknowledged the important work that they were doing. So in very, very many ways, I had to say some of the first meetings with the artists I was working with, please disregard Edvard Munch. And a lot of them wanted to. I mean, the final project that we did in Munch Museum on the Move takes its title from a work by Edvard Munch, Summer Night by the Beach. And it's a film cabaret by Danish artist duo Kirsten Astrup and Maria Bordorf. And it's beautiful kind of 26 minute long film cabaret which then uses Edvard Munch's title but then takes the history of Kongsham Baths which are now a sort of container park in the fjord but used to be this wonderful summer cabaret stage and invited their queer community in Copenhagen to perform these roles and also looked at the sort of maybe the alienating lifestyle it could be to live in these new very fancy luxury apartments that sort of now surround the new museum building on the waterfront. So the connections, the, the very loose connections to Edvard Munch, the artist, but it's fundamentally connected to the locality of Oslo and where the museum is situated. So then, of course, the next question, because I know a lot of the listeners are practicing artists. One of the things is, of course, how do artists get on your radar? So like, how do you even find artists? I mean, I'm sure there are obviously publications and websites and things like that you follow, but like beyond that, because those are not always easy to get in, let's say. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question, which I think is a lot more pertinent now in a pandemic, because previously it was based on stuff you saw. I mean, I think my most useful tool, if you like, are my trainers, my Nikes that I walk around in, because it's like you cover so much ground just looking at stuff. And going to art fairs and things like this, yeah. Not so much art fairs, to be honest, no. but more like biennials, other forms of perennials, documenters, galleries, big public institutions, smaller institutions. I think I was quite lucky, or I mean, I did conceive it that way. It was really important for this Mork Museum on the Move to be anchored in locality and for younger artists in Oslo to feel like the Monk Museum was also their museum. So I didn't have to walk very far. I mean, I did cover a hell of a lot of territory within a particular area of Oslo and had every Friday would go on studio visits, trying to be very sort of open about that this wasn't specifically kind of an instrumental studio visit. It wasn't about this is for a show, but this is more kind of general research and I want to know what's happening in the city that I live in. And I think it's our duty as curators to to keep abreast of what's happening on our doorsteps, not kind of get removed and disappear into the citadels of the sort of large museum. So I did a lot of that. And of course, I was helped by my own network. And also the fact I have to acknowledge this, that my father was professor in the Art Academy for 37 years. So it is a complete luxury. And I'm very aware of the privilege of being able to go to someone like him and say, hey, can you think of anyone who's graduated in the last 35 years who works with this? And also artists, I mean, I think maybe artists should be aware of is that curators talk to each other a lot. So even if you're meeting with one particular curator doesn't lead to anything, then that person will talk to another person and say, oh, I, I met this, you know, this great person today who, who's not really, the work isn't particularly relevant for the show that I'm working on or the project that I'm involved in. But, you know, your thing, whatever it's about, maybe you should look at this person's work. Yeah. So that's basically the how I try and do research now. And we're working on a series of contemporary art digital shorts at the moment to have something to offer audiences when they can't physically go to the museum because all, all museums and galleries in Oslo are closed at the moment. And then I'm working with a couple of younger curators and they're like saying that they're rounding the internet. I mean, so many times and they're getting almost like square eyes from just watching a screen every day. And, and you, you find people from the strangest ways. I mean, Instagram and then linking and linking and then, yeah. <laughs> I'm horrible at Instagram. I, I've tried to do it for so long and I just can't crack that algorithm. I don't know. So. I mean, the algorithm is tricky, but I don't think that means that one shouldn't use it as a platform. I mean, if you think of it as a, it's like a display window, like any kind of shop or business, it doesn't have to be, what's really lovely about it as well is that it's very often free of the kind of art speak and the artist statement is very much about the work and then maybe you get two lines and then maybe you click into the artist's website. I mean, I say to my students, unfortunately, or fortunately, because it's, two-dimensional you need to have these shop windows for your work or else you do risk that people don't see it i'm aware of that it's a horrible necessary evil in the world these days and and i try my best but it's i find it a little hard because like i've had some guests who like do social media incredibly well and they've given little tips and tricks and it's always basically like 
don't use it as a portfolio, but like express more about your life and your lifestyle and your vision and your behind the scenes and creation of. And, and I'm just like, I, I don't want everybody to know all that stuff about me. Like I'm, I, even though I run a podcast and I share a lot of information about my life, there are certain things I like to keep private. Yeah. Also, I don't, I'm not remotely interested in what you do in your private life or what you had for breakfast or lunch or whatever. I mean, I, I am interested in seeing the work. And I love you for that. That's great. <laughs> Good. So we're, we're of the same ilk on that position. I like it. All right. I also noticed in your, I don't know, bio thing, it talked about queer curatorial approach. Is that something you're still working with now? Yeah, I think it's something I will always have. I mean, it was very explicit in Montcommissier on the Move, and it was very loose, because I think how I defined it to the artists was if they could find some aspect of the neighbourhood, so this very diverse neighbourhood that's within the close vicinity of the museum that had been in some way marginalised or overlooked or ignored. So it had not necessarily anything to do with the artist's personal identity. So I worked with queer artists who, in a sense, made queer work, but also with straight and cis artists who also made work that they described in a sort of queer way, and queer artists who didn't make queer work and all permutations of those things. It was, of course, some of the, I think the more noticeable projects, perhaps, were the ones that were very, yeah, very queer. I mean, the, the ones that had a huge visibility. We did a pro Oslo Pride parade float with Trollkrim and Torerik, but of course that's going to be very visible as a contribution into a queer conversation or a queer landscape. But other more subtle projects as well. Well, hold on one second. Let's back up a little bit. I'm going to be really stupid. Keep in mind the title's The Wise Fool for the podcast. So I'm going to ask a stupid question. Give me a definition of queer specifically i mean that sort of in contrast to like lgbtq and like all these guys so like how does that fit what's your definition of what you're calling queer curatorial work yeah i think it's important to emphasize that this is just how i work with it right because there are so many different ways in which people describe themselves and want to express themselves but in the way that i work curatorially queer is not limited to issues of sexual orientation. It refers rather to a sort of critique or rupture of an existing order, which isn't only heteronormative, but misogynist, white, anthropocentric, traditional in its values, conservative in its approach to artistic disciplines and disciplining. In many ways, it tries to consider the other, or like the alternative that has been othered by the dominant social order. That's how I define queer. And I was like, I mean, I define myself as queer. And maybe 10 years ago, I would have said I was a lesbian, but I prefer the sort of floating queer mantra. Yeah, the the, the changing terminology, I'm you know, having a difficulty just keeping up and making sure that I'm using the right words for the right definitions, basically, because I'm just not keeping up. That's all. Yeah, and they change all the time. And I think some of those guides that are put out by certain organizations to an inclusive language, very often they just say, just ask. Like, if you don't know, it's better to, because you're talking about somebody who's felt that their identity, their orientation, their, their fundamental sense of self has always been excluded 
or marginalized in some way. So I think just a gesture of asking or just a gesture of being able to consider that there might be something beyond the sort of heteronormative binary in and of itself is an open gesture, which is very much appreciated. It's very funny because like I sit around and like I hear all these stories about all of this stuff we've been discussing here. So queer, LGBTQ, non-binary, all this kind of stuff. And, and, And I'm just in there, I'm like, why does anybody even have a problem with any of this? Like, I don't understand, but some people have problems with all of this. And I I was raised in a reasonably liberal household and a reasonably liberal community. So I guess, like, to me, I was just sort of like, yeah, what? I don't understand. (laughs) Like, it's obvious. You know, the, the, the tradition is white, male dominant, art industry like yeah we all know that though to me that was very clear that that's what it was i mean history was written by the victors kind of things kind of stuff so like yeah so i i've always wondered sort of like like for me it's like i don't who has problems with these things i guess is the sort of the point well you're sitting in eastern europe for a number of countries around you that have uh, huge problems in uh, putting lgbtq free zones there's a huge amount of violence directed against sexual minorities, which maybe you don't see, and frankly, probably I don't see that that much of. There was I'm always reminded of there was a work in the Istanbul Biennial, the one that was curated by Vehavir, and there was a really powerful video which was, and I might be getting the facts slightly wrong, but I think it was in Zagreb. I think it was the first Zagreb Pride which was filmed from from almost from start to finish. And they had a form of police protection, but there were also these right-wing thugs, basically, who were attacking the people in the parade. And just the level of kind of hatred that you could just feel emanate from these people, even through the via the medium of the screen, was just deeply disturbing. And I think, and as a queer person myself, I just, I found it incredibly upsetting. And that's, we're talking 2000s there. And this still happens to a lot of people. So whilst I completely agree with you and see, of course, it shouldn't be a problem. Of course, it shouldn't be like this. It is like this. Agreed. Yeah, it is. I guess maybe I just live in a bubble that I stay away from those kinds of people. So I just don't see it very much. Yeah. Then you have people who harbor those opinions and you you would never realize they suddenly come creeping out of the woodwork. And you think, wow, do you really think that? Um, I mean, when I was raised, my my uncle was gay. Back then, it was called gay, just to be clear. So this is, this is you know early '90s kind of time period. Uh, he was gay, and he he passed away of a complications due to AIDS and all this kind of stuff. So like this has been in our family for a while. So like it's not to me. It's just like yeah, okay, <laughs> totally normal. But I guess a, a lot of communities don't have a lot of this. Anyways. Anything else you want to finish about that? I don't know where to start, to be honest. So I think that's it's nice to to finish off on that. And I'm I'm sorry for your loss of your uncle. Oh, it was twenty five years ago. It's fine, but it was my father's twin brother, so that was a little difficult for him to lo- lose his twin brother. I think it's also. I mean, I I think I would want to add something, which is the first project in Mokbusse on the Move was won by an artist, Swedish artist called Sam Hultin, and it was called I Am Every Lesbian Oslo. And it was a project that I had started before I got the job at the museum because I got a bit of funding from the Arts Council. And what Hultin does is, is basically interview local 
lesbians with a star, so anyone who's sort of female-defined, and have them retell their stories connected to sort of seminal sites in the city, either important personally or important sort of on a on a wider societal level. And then, so for during Oslo Pride, we were having the first of these urban walks because that's one of the performative elements is to pick out some of these stories and then go as a group and then retell the stories connected to that particular building or that particular park or it's a really beautiful project that then kind of has tentacles out all over the city and uncovers these completely marginalized histories from the urban fabric and when we were going to do this walk it was day after the Orlando massacre at the Pulse nightclub and and I think that that was it. I mean, I held the speech and my voice cracked because it just felt so important at that particular point to to gather together as a community and obviously a very diverse community to come together and just to celebrate the history of these people who had gone before us, but also just spend time together and take up space in the city because there are so many people who then want to erase that kind of visibility and not just visibility, but also like physical bodies. So unfortunately, I don't think there's something that is just belongs to the past. It's I think it's very much current. I find that to be a very sad state of affairs in the 21st century. You think we can get past silly things like this. But sorry, I didn't mean silly things like this. That's that was sort of inappropriate. Um, fundamental things like this. But that's just me. Let's shift topics away from that to something else. By the way, I'm going to be doing a panel discussion about lots of different topics, but the first one's going to be LGBTQ in the arts is my first panel topic. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm a little scared about it. My second one is sexism in the arts. That you're running or participating in? I will be the host, uh, the moderator. I know, I'm like, I suddenly am like... Oh my God, I'm probably the most unqualified moderator for this ever, just by like talking with you. But anyways. I mean, I think as long as you acknowledge it, there can be something really helpful in having, pardon the insinuation, and completely ignorant moderator. It enables people to put things in terms which are maybe a little bit widely, more widely understandable, might give you a wider reach. And that is the whole concept behind this podcast, so... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, basically, like the idea of the podcast is like, I have some knowledge, I have my very specific knowledge, and I'm very qualified at that and very you know, masterful at that. And there is so much stuff that I have no idea about. And I'm an absolute idiot about. I think I just found one of those topics. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So should be interesting. All right. Take it back a step. So the Munk Museum. So the Munk Museum, how did it sort of come together? So the, it's, I don't know the history of the museum. So it's funded by the Norwegian government? Like, and so like, how does it all function? It's funded by the city of Oslo. So it's a city museum rather than a national museum. It opened, so Edvard Munk dedicated his work in 1944, just before he died. The museum was built and opened in 1963 on the east side of Oslo, Tayin, which then, and until fairly recently, was a relatively sort of socially disadvantaged area. It's an area full of real kind of contradictions. It had, you know, in always at that point, only three-star Michelin restaurant it had the Natural History Museum, but it also had some of the 
highest demographic rates of unemployment, closed living quarters, social problems. It doesn't have that as much anymore, but it's just incredibly kind of complex and diverse. It had so many different religious buildings from a kind of Buddhist temple, Catholic church, several mosques, various other churches, one that was very LGBTQI friendly, in fact, and where the Oslo Pride Parade starts. But it was just full, it was a super interesting area of old Oslo, which isn't just Tayen, it's Tayen and Grenland and Gamleby and place names that might not make any sense to your listeners, but I just wanted to mention them anyway. And now that you're getting ready, so you came out of school in 2008 in the financial crisis, and now you're getting ready to open up a brand new museum in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Anything there? <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the words that they say? You roll with the punches. I mean, it's a hugely privileged position to be in. In 2008, it was hugely privileged to graduate from the Royal College and to then get a job at the Whitechapel Gallery. We're hugely privileged to be able to move and get these fantastic facilities for both for the collection and for all the other art projects that will be done. I guess the only way is up from this particular moment where you can't show anything. It does actually also, I mean, I never realized perhaps how, how dependent one is on audiences. Because you you get very stuck in how you work with artists and you work on kind of delivering the best possible work for a particular setting. And of course, you very much care what people think of it and how many people show up. But when they can't show up, a huge part of what I do just feels meaningless because I don't even make anything. I mean, as a curator, you work as a, in a form of support structure for other people's making and crucially display. And if you can't display it for anyone then, you know, it's hard not to think, well, what's the point of me? I disagree with that, Horror. I mean, I understand your perspective <laughs> for sure. Well, okay, so when it comes to the, let's say, for, so for the museum, you close to the public, you don't have visitors coming and seeing the works. You probably did something online at that point. How does that work with like tracking matrices? Because like, you know, like museums, like they track how many people come in, how long they stay. I don't even know how many matrix you do. Like it could be even, you know, uh, gender breakdowns, whatever, you know, different sort of quantifiable sort of uh, outcomes of, of the exhibition. Do you do that also with online? Like, and, and how does that change? Like, because like there's one thing to how many people, how long they stay in a physical gallery. And there's a difference between how their attention span online and how long they'll stay online. Yeah, I mean, it's we have had this CADS program, which is open as a, the second edition opens today, in fact, on April the 15th. Contemporary Art Digital Shorts, where we show film video work. But of course, people are getting a bit of online fatigue now after a over a year of a pandemic. So we're, we're trying to keep them quite short, quite brief. And there are pros and cons. I mean, some of the pros is that you can reach people who are sitting in Peru and who wouldn't otherwise be able to come to the museum. A con would be that people don't remotely spend as much time 
on an online work as they would do if they came. They planned a museum visit. They walked in the door. They've decided to spend a certain amount of time there. They have pit stops in terms of cafes or lunch or, or whatever they need. And they would, I don't know how long we've factored in that people might stay, but it's, it is a destination as opposed to just an offer that basically comes in across your crowded desktop. Another thing that somebody, one of my colleagues pointed out was that it was really nice to see video works where you could start them yourself and stop them and go back to them in a way that, I mean, very often if you're, if you're particularly if it's a big exhibition, and I'm thinking again of something, the stats that came out of several documenters, how many thousands of hours of like video footage if you're going to watch every work. So video, film and video work does often get quite a raw deal within a sort of traditional display platforms because people stick their head in, they realise that in the middle of a film they maybe watch it for a minute or two and then they walk on. Or So the fact that you can sit somewhere and press play, press pause, go back to it, maybe you've only watched one video a day, it's a completely different way of viewing moving image work, which I think is quite interesting and something that we, we need to take into account when the museum does open. Maybe if there's some way of being able to offer that kind of experience or that kind of access, even though you're not going to have the the right projector or the most fantastic speakers that you have in a gallery setting you know you are watching it on your screen with relatively crappy headphones still you're getting something from it so yeah long-winded answer but there are benefits and really interesting aspects that this this scenario has thrown up well i find it interesting because like when i'm thinking about what you're talking about right there so like video work there's something like I've watched videos obviously in museums and galleries and things like this. And there's something about the experience of having walked in, probably gone through a curtain, you know, the very sort of, uh, I want to call it sterile environment, but sort of the iconic white QB kind of environment, the reverence that, that I have for that kind of experience that when I watch uh, something, the same video, let's say on my desktop at home, I don't have the focused attention quite as much as I do when it's placed in this, you know, place of reverence, you know, so a museum, a gallery, etc. So I find watching art, video artwork at home, not as, um, I'm not as focused on it, I guess would be the easiest way because I'm distracted. Like while I'm looking, some email might pop up or whatever else might sort of distract me. So I find it personally a bit difficult to engage at such a high level and as such intimacy as I do when I see things at a place and a time that I've set aside to be in a, that experience. Yeah. Maybe a combination could work. I mean, there's also the idea of other people, right? That you're experiencing something with other people. I think one of those, the strongest works I saw when we could still go to exhibitions was Arthur Jaffer's Love is the Message, the Message is Death. And seeing that on a huge screen with massive speaker systems and just having that experience and also having that experience with other people in that space was really stunning. And it's not going to be the same when you look at it on your laptop when you get home. But there are aspects of that work that you then notice that you maybe didn't notice upon first viewing or second or third viewing even. You can go into the details and very many moving image works conceived so incredibly thoughtfully 
that you almost owe it to the artist to try and to try and get all of the details, all of the little nuts and bolts of the work, and kind of to have that entire experience. And I think if you could have some way of getting both, that might be ideal. It's like when you go somewhere and you have an experience and you love it so much that like you you want to bring it home. And when you experience it at home, it then you're reminded of that great time. Yeah. But it's really hard right now because you only have that at home time. So we don't have that that initial like beautiful, like magical moment of seeing it the first time to then rewatch it. It's difficult. I mean, I'm 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 sympathizing or empathizing with you on the difficulties of this. Yeah, because I mean, it can go both ways. Now I can't get the image out of my head of, you know, when if you go on holiday somewhere and you taste some kind of local spirit and you think, oh, that's lovely, and you bring it home and it's horrid when you try it. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) what I'm talking about. Correct. (laughs) Yes. Not comparing artworks to bad local spirits, but you get my idea. I do. That's exactly my point is like, there's a certain amount of like beauty in the experience and, and sort of a move, a, you know, a feeling that you get from doing that thing that I personally at this moment, and maybe times will change, but at this moment, don't attain by watching art on a screen in my home office. Yeah, but things might change. Yeah, I don't know. Things will only get better. I'm looking forward to like virtual reality stuff that I can then sort of experience the virtual reality at home kind of stuff. Like, but I don't own any of that equipment, so I can't do that yet. So, and that's in the very near future. I mean, uh, we do we're working on a big group show around kind of intersections of human life and technology, and so I have had a few sort of VR experiences at home. And what's surprising about it is exhausting if you're not used to gaming. It's incredible. It's like information overload. Uh, I feel like those people who first saw the Lumiere Brothers film and completely sort of overwhelmed by by the technology. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a sensory overload for sure the first few times you use that kind of device. But it could, you could do augmented reality then. Yeah, which was, I mean, the opportunities now are huge. Also for how one might view art. I mean, I think the way it changes how you interact with art and how you respond to art. I mean, we're so used to this idea of either encountering sort of works of public art, surprisingly, and often annoyingly. And then other times where you go into a specific kind of building, the conditions are exactly how you expect them to be. And to make that sort of shift into either using your handheld device to experience something or using your computer. I think we're just so so early in that game in a sort of widespread sense that it will be interesting to note what happens in the next sort of five years. And if we have some way of recording how we feel about it now, I think we'd look back on it and sort of roll our eyes. Well, speaking of that, the thing that's on everybody's conversation these days are NFTs. What do you think about those? Well, I was dreading if you were going to ask me about them. Uh- <laughs> okay, we can skip it. We can move on. Like, I well, okay. The reason why I ask is because in my career, I've made a lot of these like little digital files throughout my my career that I've always just like made. They, I, I sort of call them like like sketches and ideas and stuff, and I never really did anything with them. And then suddenly NFTs become this thing, and I'm like, oh, I could I could finally have an outlet for this like terabytes of work that I've made that I've never exhibited and I've never shown to the world. And then I went and did some research and like as a producer, 
I have to pay anywhere from like seven to 75 US dollars to simply create the NFT with no guarantee of return on that monies. So like, because I'm sitting there like I've got tens of thousands of images that I could put out there, but I don't have $72,000 to throw down to create these NFTs. And I found that whole system, like I personally am a little bit of a maybe a, a conspiracy theorist. Like I kind of believe that like the whole NFT thing is a little bit of like money laundering going on more so than necessarily like high art kind of thing. So like I'm a little trepidatious about it at this point. You know, I mean, it seems to reproduce some a lot of those kinds of forms of exclusion that you find in any other kind of artwork. If you have the high production value of something, then you're able to step into or place it in a different kind of market, which then gives you a very high return and the high prices. And then you're into a sort of market logic, which I think is very little to do with what I think is important about arts. It's tough. I mean, it, I feel like it's based around the idea of stocks basically it's it's just it's just money shifting around and the images that are created or the little nfts are just representations of money being moved but i i feel like it's more like a money moving thing than an art thing but that's true of a lot of artworks as well i mean traditional sculptures and paintings are also <laughs> money moving devices unfortunately i've heard stories about that but i have no proof of that <laughs> Well, I mean, there's so many different series, even at the moment on Netflix and HBO and probably every other platform that talk about this. And they're hugely inflated prices for artworks. So it's got nothing to do with art, to be honest. It's hard. I mean, because like I'm a practicing artist and I always look at these things. And unfortunately, we only hear like through the news and social media stuff about the things that are selling for hundreds of millions of dollars. But I wish there was more conversation about the people that are for lack of a better word, like making a living, you know, like artists who are able to support themselves, like that's the really great story. But unfortunately, we've romanticized these multi-million dollar things and they're unrealistic in the average life of an artist. Oh, completely. But I don't think it's, I mean, it's sort of mainstream media that picks on that as the, the, the main story, because that's the easiest story to write. And it's the one with the functions as clickbait. And then you're into an entire different rigmarole of, of how finances work. But I think some of the more, the other art publications write about art in a different way. Of course, they have their own sort of structural forms of exclusion there and their own advertisers and sponsors that they have to answer to as well yes it's always money is the the thing that makes it all go round which is both sad and true at the same time or makes that thing go round i mean there is there are the entire other sort of circuits which have to do with a form of local engagement a very personal level engagement that kind of system is, is completely remote from what you're describing now. And I think that's where the sort of the realness, for want of a better word, of art resides. Okay, wait, I have a question for you. I had a guest a year ago from Finland, and she talked about how she was uh, supported by the government and all that. Are How are artists supported, or are they supported by the government in Norway? I think it's relatively similar to Finland. So from a lot of hard lobbying work by artists in the 1970s, the artist action. There are a number of 
grants and support structures available for artists which managed by the Arts Council. Compared to many other countries, it's incredibly generous. But I think if you break it down into what it actually is for a jobbing artist, the, the sums are relatively low. So it's not like you're living the high luxury life on these kinds of grants, but I think they're incredibly important because they just buy some time. And you can have, I think, a 50% job uh, alongside it. So it enables people to either work as kind of teachers or do any other other form to support themselves, but it buys you that at least that 50% of time in the studio. I would love it if I could find grants that would support me 50%. I'll take 50%. I'm an American. We don't even get 5% there. So like 50% astounding, all for it. But it's 50% of like an average, relatively low salary, just, just to be clear. And they are being... I'll still take it. I'll take it. But then we have, and not to whine on about the pandemic, but currently, I mean, I think artists and also art institutions are the ones that have suffered the most from the pandemic. So all of these other support structures that have been put in place to help aspects of businesses, large businesses are taking obviously the, the largest part of the pie. Artists are not an art institution not really being considered in in that particular fallout. So I'm, I'm quite worried to see how people come out of this. Well, I've had this discussion before, which is like, right now, during the COVID, there's been this sort of outcry of like, oh my gosh, you got to support the creative people, the you know, the gig economy people, the artists, the whatever, the people that you know have not had their, their business. So, and while that's great, this outpouring of assistance, the issue is really the long-term effects. Because the government or these corporations that have been the supporters of the arts through the past after COVID, some of those businesses and some of those governments are just simply not going to have the funds to continue to support the arts and artists after this is done. And that's the big concern that they had. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty true. Yeah, more true in the States than it is in Norway, I think, but here as well, because I mean, the sponsorship of the arts is much more developed in the States than it is in Norway. Also because you don't have the same kind of government structures and support structures that we have here. But Norway's moving in that direction of being able to to be able to make a profit, basically. So yeah, if you don't have those those private funds coming in and you're not being recognized or taken care of in the government funds that are being awarded, then what happens? And that is the concern for the sort of post-pandemic time with the arts, yes. Back to the Munch Museum. <laughs> you have this collection. Do you have to you have to store this, yes? Or is it all on display at all times? No, there's some some display, some stored. I'm always fascinated by storage itself. Like so like do you have like custom made crates for each piece and, and you have like pay for some off-site security, climate-controlled storage, and like all this kind of stuff? Like, how's that all done? Well, I don't know about the details so much of this, but yes, there is some storage on-site, and then there is some storage off-site. And of course, the climate control, I think our museum have one of the strictest climate control conditions of many. And there's a huge amount of research going on in the conservation department about the effects that various kind of climactic features have on artworks 
I mean, Edvard Munch was, he was, was terrible with his work. He just left it outside for, for the bird droppings and wind and weather. And well, I mean, he, that's kind of maybe particular, but I also find a lot of contemporary artists are very careless with their work. So that's, but of course, when you have this, this gift, your primary responsibility is to look after it in the right way, but also then to see whether there are certain, I mean, do you preserve the bird droppings has been actually a sort of topic of research and investigation. Uh, and how do you work with restoring those particular works? There's another project which has recently been started is how do you, how do you work with conservation of contemporary art? So particularly the things that are intangible. How do you conserve, preserve a performance? How do you social practice? How does that get conserved, preserved, looked after? I mean, it is actually a really fascinating area, but you can really go into the minute details of preservation and conservation. Oh, I've been obsessed about it for decades because I'm a, uh, traditionally a photographer was my medium that I started with. And when I was starting in the like, early 90s, they were obsessed with uh, archival processes and every single professor and every single gallery was always like, are you doing this with archival materials, etc.? You know, pH balanced, matting, like the whole thing. Like, so I've become rather obsessed about it to the point that it's probably to my detriment because now I'm such a snob about quality materials that I sort of can't just be creative with whatever I have because I need the right materials just in case it ends up being an amazing piece that it better be done with the good archival materials because like it would really suck to end up making an amazing piece with non-archival works and it's just like ugh. so yes it's a problem <laughs> so how do you archive your photography then I keep it in clamshell boxes with uh, glycine between each print so that they don't stick. Um, and I keep them in a climate-controlled space. But that's with, for my traditional silver gelatin works or uh, any sort of um, uh, non-traditional medium, so my cyanotypes and gum bichromates and all these other things. But then, of course, there's digital. So, like, digital is a whole different thing. And then digital print is, prints... It's kind of one of those things like how precious is a digital print since I could just reprint it if, if it gets damaged. So it's a little – I keep a number of prints and I keep them again in climate controlled and glycine between them and all that in clamshell boxes, you know, archival pH balance, all that. But I don't feel quite as precious about those because quite honestly I could just easily reprint those. But, uh, you know, darkroom, analog silver gelatin prints i it would be really hard and really expensive to reprint those so i'm a little bit more precious about those but you do have the negatives as well oh of course oh my god i did treat my negatives like gold like they're also kept in climate controlled boxes archival sleeves the whole thing so yeah i mean i'm of that era that like treats everything super well <laughs> But I also came from a family. My my parents have a little art collection and my dad makes art as well. So like we sort of have a a reverence for art that that uh, is probably unique, I'm sure. It's normal to me, but I think it's unique among the world. Well, great. For future generations are going to be very grateful for that. You know, it's funny, I've been talk, thinking a lot because I had a guest again on the podcast, Amy Potsick, a legacy planner about like how artists as living artists should be putting effort into creating their own legacy. 
and like keeping paperwork and keeping negatives and keeping documents and everything around their career because part of the way that an artist continues to be known after their death is through the ability to have scholarly research done on things about them. So not only do you have to keep your artwork, but keeping all the stuff around your artwork. So your journals, your receipts, your these kinds of things makes it so that in the future people can do research on you. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking into this at the moment. How do you archive curatorial practice in a good way? Which is also a project for the Norwegian Association of Curators, where we started this conversation. But also, how do you archive an exhibition from a curatorial perspective? Because obviously the artworks are documented. Hopefully everyone's been as thoughtful as you about how they've archived their own process. But how do you and what do you archive from uh, a curatorial process? And you have someone like Harold Zaman who's got like... I've been looking at his files in the Getty Research Center in LA and it's just boxes upon boxes upon boxes of stuff describing exactly what I mean receipts he often wrote some of his ideas down on napkins which have then been perfectly preserved but there's also I mean I find and this is what I'm quite bad at the sort of from a curator's point of view like the pomposity of doing that at the age of like 21 this is going to be important for the future. It's just something that I can't begin to to stomach. And I've done, I mean, I've done my archival research. I did my PhD on exhibitions. I should be one of the people who are most excited and most diligent about archiving. I'm really not. Yeah. I mean, we all should be better at it. But, but the problem then becomes the fact that like, okay, so let's say at 21, you start collecting all this stuff. That means you have to keep it with you and you have to transport it every time you move you have to pay to store it you have to keep it organized you have to keep it climate control whatever for like 60 years until you die you know and then your children theoretically would have to do the same thing and it's just like oh come on like there is a point where we shouldn't be having to lug around or pay for storage i had storage units for years of stuff that i finally was just like i'm done with the storage units <laughs> Yeah, and then suddenly you find something that you really needed from that archive and it's very annoying. Or you just forget. I mean, amnesia is a happy thing sometimes. I thoroughly enjoyed going. It was just this past September I had to go through my storage unit and I so enjoyed it because I was like, I don't even remember producing this. Like, this is amazing. Like, how did I, when did I make this? Why did I not make more of this? Like, it's a a wealth of like random things that I was just re-inspired by basically, <laughs> you know, re reinventing an idea that I came up with 30 years ago. So it was lovely. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because a lot of artists work that way and you do need the archive or some semblance of an archive in order to, to see, because ideas don't, you know, they don't, they don't burst in a particular era or a particular year or particular day and then disappear. I mean, they're all connected to each other. So if you have some easy way of accessing it, I mean, some artists make a book for particular exhibitions or a particular period of time, and then you can go back and you're seeing so much of that early work get different kind of manifestations later on. Oh, yeah. It's the, I call it sort of like the common thread that runs through an artist's career. So like there are like little things, little techniques or ideas that are approached or addressed early in their career that they revisit or expand on as their career expands. Yeah. All right, last two questions. First one, do you have three artists that you are you find of note right now that you're sort of following or looking at? 
Oh, wow. <laughs> Con contemporary artists. Sorry, I should be clear on that. These ones, that's a tricky one because I'm always going to have those, what the Germans, I think, call stare whispers. You know, when you've answered the question, you think, ah, I should have thought of that person. I mean, there are artists, <laughs> as you get 200 references to artists. You're welcome to send me some links and I'll put them in the show notes later. That's fine. But I think, I mean, <laughs> I am, these are people who I'm going to, well, I'm working with and are going to have shows at Monk. So they're very much at the forefront of my mind. Camille Enroux, French artist who's based in New York, she won the inaugural Edouard Monk Art Award in 2015. And with that comes a solo exhibition, which is finally happening in 2022. She's an incredible artist. I mean, I followed her work way before she, she was given this particular prize. And she's just opening a new exhibition in Hannover. And they're making a new book about her work. And she, she's incredible. She's you know, some artists who manage to combine the kind of really smart thinking with really incredible visceral works. You don't have to, to read extensively in order to just get it on a visceral level. But at the same time, you can also, if you go down the rabbit hole and join her in her thinking, it's, it's an incredible experience. So I feel really privileged to be working with her. Then there's a Norwegian artist called... Sandra Mujinga, who is having many exhibitions this coming year, and particularly one that's coming up in the Swiss Institute in New York. She's also included in the New Museum Triennial. And she's someone whose work I've also been following for a number of years, and also taught to my students. Because there's a sort of level of reflection and conviction almost in her work, which is just incredibly impressive. And again, a little bit like Camille Enro, the last show that I saw of hers was at Bergen Kunsthal uh, in Bergen and the students went as well. This huge hologrammed work inspired somewhat of by her mother, her deceased mother, but then also managing to kind of capture so much of ideas of Afrofuturism, of black bodies in a particular historical moment. I mean, just, just incredible work. And it's a very, very cool as well. A very, very distinct kind of visual way of expressing herself. And the final one, this is the, the terrible thing of having, of, of only having three, if you like. You can do four, it's fine. <laughs> I, I, I just randomly choose three because I like the number three. Yeah, I think a lot of people have. It's the, sort of the rule of three with a lot of things. I had three case studies for my PhD. It's very common. It's something that happens within the kind of juxtaposition of three things. My mother's an interior decorator, so she always decorated in threes. So yeah. There's something really, really beautiful about that number. And my father's a priest, so you know the, the Holy Trinity has been <laughs> sort of ingrained into me. He's a priest and an artist. Yeah. yeah. Great combination. He actually paints uh, 13th and 14th century Russian Byzantine icons. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I've got the third one. Okay. Which is almost painful because I, that means excluding everyone else that I'm currently thinking about. But American artist who's Stavanger-born, sorry, lives in Stavanger, Corey Archangel. He's currently got a show on at Green Naftali, and he very kindly gave us a tour of that exhibition, sort of online tour. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, creates these 
absurd hacks in many ways, utterly meaningless works in a way that manage to convey the hollowness of certain sort of indices of success that we have currently. So I don't know if you've had an opportunity to check out his show. It's on for another couple of days. I don't think we have time to go into the details of it, but there is a piece there that he's worked on for four years, which plays with a video game, which is a Kim Kardashian video game, where you gather kind of celebrity points. And it's a machine that is learning how to play that game. And you're watching the machine learn how to play it. And it plays it really badly. And it just becomes such a wonderful image of the the meaningless of that particular game, the pointlessness of fame, but also the how the sort of the machine trying to learn this stuff with all of the mega kind of intelligence that the machine has, and still is pretty appalling at it. That is such a it's a really wonderful work, which I hope people will get opportunities to see. And he's just done a contemporary art digital short for for Munch, so which is then available on the Munch Museum website, which is a new commission where he creates a bot that likes social media posts from various different companies. This one is particularly from Zara. And just that kind of seeing every post that comes up and then this little machine making the heart just... I mean, it's such a clever comment on the the hollowness of the digital heart when you can make and when you can pay these sort of click farms to do them. And when you think about so many young people being so obsessed about the amount of, of likes that they get and the amount of hearts that they get, and you know you can just buy them. And it just, that whole sort of gesture, yeah, it just sort of lampoons it. Really fun artist. I can see you giggling. I am giggling because like I'm sitting here, I'm like, it's not just kids that are obsessed. Other people are obsessed. <laughs> I, I, That's true. I, I go back and forth. Some some months I'm substantially more obsessed about social media than others for sure. But uh, yeah, sad but true state of affairs. All right. Last question is advice for the next generation, particularly in your case of like uh, curatorial practices, artists, things along that line. Stay strong. That's a quote that my father made a piece of work, which is the final sentences on inmates on death row immediately before they're executed. That the final sentence, one of them, and it's been printed is stay strong. Not to talk too much about that work, but I'm always fascinated by like, when you're about, you know that you're about to leave this earth, what do you say? Is it the Oscar Wilde, either I go or that wallpaper goes? They would love to be so clever as to think of something like that. I mean, what do you say, particularly if it's sort of involuntary? But the phrase stay strong, I think, is definitely necessary in this period of time. But that's much more about the sort of the inner, more specific advice. Look at stuff. Just try not to disappear into your studio and your own world. When when you can, go and see as much as possible. I have great faith in the sort of community of art which is created around either discursive events or around having seen the same thing in the same space that i think is what will sustain you also through those tough times where you know the studio work's not going particularly well you're feeling like you're just sort of in some sort of sludge to have that kind of community with a direct community of friends and other artists or whether it's a sense of community with other artists. I mean, I found it really, just talking about these three artists when you asked me about it, I just felt myself get incredibly uplifted because there are some really brilliant people out there who 
are making incredibly incisive and in many ways also beautiful things that say something about our current kind of human condition and predicament and offer no sort of direct pathway to the future, but just offer at least some kind of interesting detour that makes you appreciate life much more in all its sort of richness and absurdities. So people should see it. Fabulous. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate that you've listened to the complete episode of this particular guest. Now what I would ask is, could you please go and give us a star rating or a comment? It could be critical. It could be supportive and positive. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that you do the ratings because as you much you all, as you all know that I have a great disdain for the algorithm, that is one hack that I have figured out will help our podcast and any podcast that you love. So please give a rating and or a comment and that will be more very supportive and helpful for the podcast. It will make it so that we can get more listeners. We get more listeners, we get better guests, we get better guests, you get more and better knowledge from listening to the podcast. So in the end, this little time that you put into this will potentially benefit you directly in your career. So thank you and I hope that I'm helpful to your career. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.